Good evening, Father. I come before you humbled that you have chosen me. You've chosen us. You've chosen each person in this room. We're all sinners. We all fall short. We are all in need of grace. But not only do you redeem us and love us and care for us, but you have a high standard that you're calling us to. And my prayer this evening will be that each person under the sound of my voice, especially the class of 2011, will take this message and run. That we will take the truth that you've given us and do things that no other person, no other generation has done before. That's my humble prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were born in 1901 to 1924, you were part of a generation called the Greatest Generation. You lived and fought through World War II. Their depression was the great one. Their war was the big one. They believed in absolute morals. They saved the world and built a nation in the process. If you were born from 1924 to 1945, you were part of the silent generation. You were born during the Great Depression and were kids during World War II. Time magazine called you silent and a still small flame. This generation was known as the post-war generation called the Seekers. If you were born from 1946 to 1964, you were part of what is called the Baby Boomers. The biggest increase in birth rates, also known as the Me Generation, the big spenders. I think we're all reaping the consequence of that one. If you were born from 1965 to 1981, you are part of a generation called Generation X. Also known as the latchkey kids because you grew up in a generation of divorce. You grew up with MTV being accept accepted. You were never really accepted and you felt that when you grew up, you had a chip on your shoulder. Now I come to 1982 through the late 90s, all of you. I hate to tell you, but your generation is undefined. According to this, there's confusion what to call you. Some people call you Generation Y. Some people call you the Millennials. Some of you, some people call you the Echo Boomers. Some people call you the net generation because of the rise of the internet. Either way, when I was doing my research, I found that your generation, talking to you and also those here today, especially the Youth Rush students and leaders, many of you here are undefined. According to this, your generation has a characteristic of being noncommittal. In fact, in colleges, one of the most popular majors is, guess what? Undeclared or undecided. We have rise to the megachurches and non-denominational churches because people, your generation, you want to be part of a church without a commitment. You don't want any strings attached. You want to come as you are, stay as you are. That's this generation. It's interesting because if you grew up in my generation, Generation X or Generation Y, you've never been through a major war. You've never 
feared about being called into a draft. There's never been a Great Depression. You've never worried about food being on the table. You've been influenced heavily by the media. You've been educated by a computer screen. You've communicated through textbook, texts and Facebook. It's interesting because the career choices that you all make, talking to the Generation Y, Souls with graduates, what you choose for a career is based upon fulfillment. Past generations, your, your career choice was defined by survival. It's interesting because if you're going into college today, I decided to find out what are the most popular college majors. You'll find biology, you'll find nursing, you'll find sociology. But because many people want fulfillment, now they have other majors. Let me see if you've heard of some of these. Have you heard of a comic book art major? You can now have a comic book art major. The University of Connecticut offers a bachelor's in puppet arts. My alma mater, the University of California, Riverside, has the only major, or the only university with a creative writing major. You can also take art history, women's studies, library technology, and get this, these two ones will flip your seat. Sullivan University in Louisville, Kentucky, they have a professional nanny major. <laughs> and my favorite one, from the Michigan State University, you can get a bachelor's, you can get a master's, you can even get a doctorate in packaging. <laughs> Just in case those of you were curious what major to decide on. 20 years ago, you would have never seen these majors. However, it seems that with each passing generation, priorities have shifted. Instead of focusing on survival and availability, our generation is focused on fulfillment and entertainment. If there is a generation that needs to be challenged, if there is a generation that needs to be dared, it's us. If there is a generation that needs to step it up, if there is a generation that needs to do something in order to get this stigma that we're undefined, that we're undeclared, that we're uncommitted, it's you. It's me. With that being said, we come to the sermon title, I Dare You. I will dare you to do three things today. Three things. First off, let me give you the definition of a dare. A dare is a challenge that proves bravery, according to the dictionary. If someone issues you a dare, and I'm sure many of you have been issued dares as a kid, I dare you to jump off the stage. I dare you to talk to this person. I dare you to throw the ball into the neighbor's yard. I dare you. We've grown up with that. There are three things that categorize a dare. Number one, there must be risk involved. Number two, it's a challenge that someone issues. And number three, it's something that you don't normally do. Keep those things in mind as I dare you tonight and I dare myself. The first story is found in Acts chapter 4. I hope you brought your Bibles today. We're going to be looking through our Bibles. We're going to be reading and studying Acts chapter 4. Dare number one, I dare you to be bold. Dare number one, class of 2011, youth rush, parents in the audience, I dare you to be bold. If you were to look in the dictionary... Being bold is defined as this, dared to do something. That is the dictionary definition, one of the definitions of being bold, dared to do something. 
Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, I'm going to introduce you to some men who are bold. Acts chapter 4, verse 1, are we all there? Notice what the Bible says. It says, And as they spoke unto the people, the priests, the captains of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved. That word grieved is translated to worried in the Greek, that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hold on them and put them in hold until the next day, for it is now evening. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about how many? Listen carefully. What story in Acts is the famous story where we have 3,000 converting in one day? Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The one story that I believe that is missed, that we don't emphasize much, is this story right here in Acts chapter 4. We have these men, and what they're doing is they're preaching the gospel. And the religious leaders are upset at this, and they're worried. They're worried that the people won't take their words anymore. They're worried about their influence. Because these unlearned men... They come onto the scene and they're preaching with such power and conviction. We see that they have been taken captive and as a result of their works, how many believe that day? 5,000. Continuing on. Notice what it says in verse 5. And it came to pass on the morrow that the rulers, the elders, and the scribes, and Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked them, By what power or by what name have you done this? Now I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You see, today it's popular to be a Christian, right? You say, I'm a Christian, what do you do? You wear a cross or people put a bumper sticker of a fish. That right there, back then, it wasn't popular to be Christian. If people found out you were a Christian, it meant death. Now we have these men. They have been taken hold of. They are put into prison. And the question is asked, by what power do you do this? Put put yourself in their shoes. What if the United States government took captive of you? And you are now being interrogated and asked, why are you putting on this conference? Why are you studying the Bible? What would you tell them? You see, beloved, I believe the time is very soon that 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 time will come where you will be put in front of rulers. You will be put in front of kings and magistrates. And depending upon if you've had a relationship with God, depending upon if you in your experience before will determine how you act, determine what you do when your life is at stake. You can't just flip on the switch and say, all right, I'm going to be bold for God today. No, beloved, it starts with a daily process. And so here we see in this story, these men are asked by the most influential men of the day, by what power are you doing this? Listen to their response. Then Peter, being filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, you rulers of people and elders of Israel, If we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole? Be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel. Notice how bold he becomes here. That by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by who, him doth this man stand here before you whole. He doesn't stop there. He continues. Verse 11, the audacity of this man. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Exclamation mark. These men don't just stop and say, we're doing this in the name of Jesus Christ. They go on to call out sin by its right name. They go on to call out these men in saying, guess what? Not only are we doing this by Jesus Christ, but you are the very source. You are the reason why people are not believing. You are the reason why there is such spiritual blindness. Now it's interesting because I love the next verse, and this is my verse for you. My verse for you is this. Verse 13. How do we get this boldness? Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with who, everyone? Jesus. Jesus. I love that part here because it's not just about being bold. It's not just about standing up and screaming at the top of your lungs what you believe. But what it says is the reason why or how they got the fuel to be bold was their time with Jesus. Now, this is beautiful here. If you think about this, these men are being persecuted. These men were laid hands on. These men were prisoners. And the people who, they just got rebuked. They were just called out. They were just called murderers. Notice what the Bible writer says. He says that even though they disagreed, even though they didn't like them, they could tell that they'd been with Jesus. Let me warn you guys, youth rush as well, those of you going to college, those of you starting your professional, your profession, the temptation will be to be too busy. Or maybe for some of you denominational workers, those of you who are pastors, the temptation will be so busy and what we tell ourselves is, it's okay, I'm doing God's work. Don't ever, listen to me carefully, don't ever be too busy that you miss out with that time with God. We see here that these men, the reason why they had power, the reason why they were bold, it's because they've been with Jesus. And it's beautiful because, let me warn you and let me tell you up front, and I'm sure you know this, that there are many people who are going to disagree with you. There are many people who won't believe in the spirit of prophecy, many people who don't believe in the investigative judgment. But what we want them to say is, even though I disagree with that Adventist, even though I disagree with that canvasser, They've been with Jesus. Amen. You can't argue with that. And that's my prayer and my hope for each person here. Let me tell you about someone. He's someone who I really admire. His name is Hugh Latimer. Talking about the subject of being bold. This man was bold for God. Any of you here ever heard of the Oxford Martyrs? 
Three men who stood up for what's right. Now, here's what I love about Hugh Latimer. He was a literature evangelist. He was what, everyone? He was in England, and it was a time when believing, or the Bible was not popular. In fact, William Tyndale, he translated the Bible into English, and it was outlawed. And Hugh Latimer saying, we need the publication, we need the Bible in English. Not only that, but Hugh Latimer was not scared to get up in front of the king. True story. Hugh Latimer once preached before King Henry VIII, the mighty king of England. Henry VIII was greatly displeased by the boldness in the sermon and ordered Latimer to preach the sermon again and apologize. Could you believe that? You imagine you're done preaching a sermon, and the king finds you, he gets some soldiers, and they find you, and they say, hey, look, guess what? Hey, did you like my sermon? Uh, no. What did I say wrong? Everything. What, what do you want me to do? We want you to preach that sermon again. Why? You didn't like the sermon. We want you to preach it and then apologize and say it was wrong. That's exactly what Hugh Latimer had to do. Listen to this. You will love this. The next Sunday, so now he's getting up to preach. Now everyone was in the crowd. You could hear hushes, and you could hear, and you know, they hear the rumors that this man is going to preach the exact same sermon he preached last Sunday. But they know that he got into trouble, and they're seeing what he's going to do. Listen carefully to what he does. The next Sunday, after reading his Bible text, he thus began his sermon. So here he goes, same sermon. But before he finishes, what he does is he starts speaking in third person. So midway through the sermon, or maybe a quarter into the sermon, he says this. He starts speaking in third person. I'm quoting him. Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak to the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest? Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. So he said that part. Continuing on. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou know that from whence thou comest upon whose message you art sent? Even by the great God Almighty, who is all present, who beholds all your ways, who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore take care that you deliver your message faithfully. He then preached the same sermon and didn't apologize. Being bold, being able to stand up for the truth, sometimes means being unpopular. Sometimes means you're the last one standing. Sometimes it means maybe a whole university, maybe a whole government against you. You know, it's interesting, they did studies. And what they did is this, they took a group of ten people. And one person was the dummy. He was the test victim. The nine people were in on it. And what they did is they would flash these cards. So they had these, these scientists, and they would flash a line. And this one was clearly the longest. They'd flash another line. This one was medium. They'd flash another line, and this one was shorter. And what they did is they, they got this guy who was their test victim. And what they did is they put all three lines up, and they had all ten people raise their hand which one was the, was the longest line. What they found in 75% of the studies, people would rather be wrong than unpopular. They found that each time they did this, once every person, the nine people, raised their hands for the line that was second longest, you know, the last guy was looking around and kind of scratching his head. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. 
People would rather be wrong, even though they know what's right, than to be rejected or unpopular. My dare to use to be bold. Not just to this track, but for all of you. Youth rush, parents, teachers. My appeal is for you to be bold for his cause, but boldness comes from time with God. Amen. Remember that. Dare number two, I dare you to take a stand. The word stand, if you look that up in the dictionary, means to maintain an upright decision. You see, beloved, it's not just good enough to be bold, but you have to maintain that. If you're just bold one day, and then the next day you leave the church, your boldness really was nothing. Not only do you need to be bold, you need to maintain that. Let's go to our next story. Daniel chapter 3. Many of you know where we're going here. It doesn't get any better than this. Daniel chapter 3. Introduce you to three Hebrew boys. Probably none of them older than 18, 19, 20. We don't know exactly their ages. It was said that they were in school probably at 15, 16. They'd probably been in school for a couple of years. They had just now have, have graduated, and now they've been given position. They've been faithful. In fact, they're set as rulers. And so here we see something interesting in Daniel chapter 3. Now, many of you know the story. What happens is this. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in this dream, he sees an image, and the image is made out of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and of course, we know clay and iron. We know that this image is struck by a rock, and Daniel gives the dream and the interpretation, and he tells the king that you are living on borrowed time. There is going to be a time when you are going to be conquered by a kingdom that is inferior to you. The clock starts now. And so here we have Nebuchadnezzar, he's dreaming and devising and thinking of, my kingdom is one day going to be taken from me. So what he does is this, is he decides to build an image. Just like he saw in the dream, but one not made from the different metals. He decides to make one completely out of gold. Does anyone know how much gold is trading for right now? Has anyone looked at, at the recent price of gold. I just checked it and it's over 1800. It's a record high. Over 1800. At first the record high was 1700 at the beginning of the week, then it rose and now it's at 1800 at the end of this week as we close near the end of the week. An ounce, $1800 for an ounce. Now, this statue was one that was big. It was one that was seen from all over. Millions upon millions of dollars was poured into the statue. And here we see what happens next is the king builds this, this huge image and he invites everyone there. Let's pick up the Bible in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 1 as we see how this story begins and concludes. Daniel 3 and verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof, six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Notice who Nebuchadnezzar invites. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent in to gather the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, if you read carefully, it says that every single person under the province 
was invited to this. Now, if you know your history, we find that the Israel nation still had their kingdom. We had Judah. It was a rocky relationship, but Nebuchadnezzar set up a puppet to be the king. Does anyone know his name? I believe it was Zedekiah. Zedekiah was the king at the time, and so we have all these people, Jews included, the king of Judah is there. Now the king decides to make a decree as well in verse 4. Notice what it says. Then a herald cried aloud to you, is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at that time, at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the sultry, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Now it's interesting because here we see that there are no pleasantries in the beginning. We see that there is no social mixers taking place. The king invites you, you hear the music, and you do what? You worship. You bow down. Now, beloved, imagine you were in this state. You were in this position. You were invited to this, and you are given a decree that you must bow down, and if you don't, it means sure death. Now, I don't know about you, but this would have been convenient, a convenient way for me to say, man, I need to tie my shoes right now. It would have been a convenient way for you to just, you know, sit down and, and just duck and say, you know, Lord, right now I'm just, I'm going to pray to you, but I'm just going to bow down. There's a lot of compromises that could have taken place here. But the audacity of these three, brew, three Hebrew boys... Not only the boldness do they have, but how they stood for what was right. I love what this says, continuing on. Notice what it says in verse 10. So obviously the music happens, and we know that at this time everyone has bowed down, but the thing is, these three, three Hebrew boys, they, they stood out like a sore thumb. Everyone could see them. In fact, I almost want to imagine that as everyone else was bowing down and these Hebrew boys, how they decided not to bow down to this image, that God locked their knees into place. And as they were there, and, and those around them probably were saying, psst, psst, hey, hey you, may, you may want to go down. That these Hebrew boys understood that, no, we have been faithful from the very beginning of our journey, and to this day, we will continue to take a stand. We know what Nebuchadnezzar does, being a good politician and one who has lots of power. As he looks and he sees the waves of people falling down, he sees probably from the corner of his eye, or maybe what has happened is an insider has said, King Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if you saw this, but there are those three Hebrew boys. They haven't bowed down to the image. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he goes and he gets them. And we know what happens in verse 10. We see what happens, and it says, You, O king, has made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the sultry, and the dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. So the people, his insiders, has reminded him of what he said. Then they point out that there are three Jews, three rebellious Jews who didn't want to bow down. Now, I could see Nebuchadnezzar, he brings these boys into his presence. Starting out, maybe saying, 
yada, 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 or Anthony, Wesney, Kristen. We, we go back, you know. I'm the one who got you a full ride to the University of Babylon. I'm the one who got you that Lexus chariot. I'm the one who, who stacked your, your robes. You all have Armani robes. I'm the one who gave you a high position. You have a nice penthouse condo looking the plain of Babylon. I've even granted you that silly vegetarian diet. Look, we know about this whole belief thing. We've been through this before, but hey, look. I'll tell you what. We'll make a deal here. There's a lot of people. You see all those people there? I can't afford them to see me look like this. I can't afford the disrespect. So I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll let you keep your religion. You know, after this day, I'll, I'll never have you do this. J just bow down once, okay? We'll role play it again. We're gonna just, we're gonna sound that music. We're gonna do that. Just go down a little bit and we'll call it good. You know, it's interesting, beloved, because at this time, this could have been when the devil could have been tempting these boys and saying, hey, why don't you just do it? Everybody's doing it. This could have been the time when the devil could have really tempted them and said, hey, are you sure you want to go to that fiery furnace there? You know, it's interesting because, beloved, if you don't stand for something, you will fall for everything. You know, I like what one preacher says. He says, even a dead fish can swim downstream, but you've got to be alive and kicking to swim upstream. And here we see that these boys, even in the face of pressure from the most powerful man in the world, that when he said, hey, look, we're going to do this one more time, I love what they said to him. Let's pick that up. Notice what it says, Daniel chapter 3. It says, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want you to put your name in there. Joel, A.J., Carlos. Put your name in there. And notice what they answered the king. They answered and said to thee, O king, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. I love that. You know, too many times we like to play the game of politics. Too many times we like to say, you know, this person's a powerful person. You know, be careful and tactful the way you speak to this person. And obviously that's, that there's truth to that. But when it comes to disobeying God's commandments, there is no negotiation. Amen. And we see what happens here. These boys, they get bold. Their, their knees have been locked into place and the Holy Spirit has taken over and they look the king dead face in the eye and they say to him, King, there is no negotiations. We are not careful to talk to you. You are not our boss. We are not careful to answer you to this matter. I love what they say. Verse 17, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. Verse 18, that conjunction, but. They say, know this. Let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods nor worship the golden image which you have set up. Where are those kind of people today? 
I'm talking to you. I'm talking to myself. We're the people who, I'm sick and tired of hearing the stories of people who say they've gone canvassing or they've gone to a, to a mission trip and they go back to the universities and they say that when they went back to the universities, they got swayed by the tide of the world. Where are the people who will go into Babylon and not be part of Babylon? You see, it's easy to get people out of Babylon, but it's hard to get Babylon out of the people. Beloved, I hope and pray that each one of you, that wherever you go after I share, back to your church, back to your school, back to your family, that you won't get swayed back into the tide of the world. That you won't start doing the things that you were doing before. That even if it means standing up to family members, to teachers, and even your pastors, whoever it is, if they're if they are telling you to disobey God's commandments, God's law, there is no negotiations. Zero. My prayer for each of you is that you will not only be bold, you will stand. It's interesting because many Koreans, as you know that Koreans, Korea is the number one Christian nation per capita. And there are many Koreans who were drafted into the war, and they were, and these are Seventh-day Adventists, they were, they were given a, a law, or they were told that they have to work on Sabbath. And many of them, when they are in this pressure situation, that they stood up for what was right, even if it meant them being court-martialed or dismissed by the Korean government and the army. But it's interesting because after this experience, after life went back to normal that they began to allow the small compromises and you'd begin to find them in the, bar, in the bars. You'd begin to find them back to their old habits. Because they were not in constant warfare for their faith and they slipped back into the crack of what they were doing, because they were back into their normal professions and their lives and their families, there was nothing for them to stand up to. They fell right back to where they were. I dare you to stand. I dare you to be bold. I dare you to stay faithful. There's one person I really admire being an evangelist and going around. This person took a stand for racial, racial equality in 1954. He was doing good old-fashioned Adventist evangelistic meetings in Alabama when a police patrol went to his tent and they told him that he was violating a law, and the law was blacks mixing with white in a public setting. Not deterred by this, this man ended up going to Washington, D.C. He began to march with Dr. Martin Luther King. He began to stand for racial equality. The man I'm talking about is E.E. E. Cleveland, Edward Earl Cleveland. It doesn't end there. This man was so bold in his preaching that Dr. Martin Luther King would listen to him. You see, today what, what we're starting to do is we're allowing non-Adventists to come and preach in our pulpits. When back in the days, we would preach and the non-Adventists would sit down and listen. Whatever happened to that? Amen. What happens is when you stand up for truth, when you stand up for what's right, people understand, wow, there is no one like those Adventists who know the Bible. I love the story of Edward Earl Cleveland. Listen to this. This is phenomenal. 
He took a stand for racial equality. More than that, he took a stand for God. In a time when he experienced racism, he excelled and became known as the most successful Adventist evangelist of all time. He was the first Adventist to baptize 1,000 people in one campaign. Over his life, he baptized 16,000 people, including the crown prince of Uganda. George Juko was baptized by E.E. Cleveland, the crown prince. Because of his work and his excellence, the governor of Alabama called up Earl, Edward Earl Cleveland, and he awarded him the Distinguished Award as the most distinguished black clergyman in the entire state. More impressive than that, Ronald Reagan gave E.E. Cleveland a call and invited him to the White House where he briefed him on international affairs. Here's something pretty impressive as well. Andrews University issued E.E. Cleveland an honorary doctorate. He also received an honorary doctor of law from Daniel Payne College. Here's probably his most notable, his most notable accomplishment. Listen to this. There was a young preacher or a young man at this time. His name was Charles David Brooks. Anyone heard of him? C.D. Brooks, my favorite preacher. C.D. Brooks was thinking of becoming a dentist or an evangelist. And he sat into Earl, Edward Earl's meetings. And as he was listening to how E.E. Cleveland was preaching, and I'm quoting here, C.D. Brooks says, The power of Cleveland's preaching and personality overwhelmed me, and I decided to become an evangelist instead of a dentist. What would have happened if C.D. Brooks decided to continue to be a dentist? I guarantee you that he would have been a good one. Guarantee you that people would have said, man, this guy is a good dentist. But I believe that the Lord was working far more with him as a preacher. Amen. Beloved, I dare you to stand. Notice this as we conclude Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25. Here's the common theme I want you to see. When you're bold for God, you get that boldness from being with Jesus. And here we see that same theme. Because these men stood for what's right, notice the theme here in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 25. The Bible reads this. As the king was looking through, and as he saw the men, in verse 24, let me start in verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spoke and said unto his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the middle of the fire? And they answered and said, True, O king. Verse 25, he answered and said, Lo, I see how many? Four. Wait a minute. How many of them were there? Three. And here the king sees four. Notice what he says about the fourth one. Watch what he says here. He says, And the fourth is like who? The Son of God. Let me ask you a question. How would King Nebuchadnezzar know what the Son of God would look like? Anyone ever thought of that? If you were to read what Ellen White's commentary is, is she said, because he had an experience of looking at Daniel and his three friends. 
What happened was because these men were, were every day in duty, every day at their job, because they were like Jesus. When he saw that fourth one, he was thinking, wow, that looks just like them. Let me put it together. I put three in there. That must be their God they're talking about. The common theme here, the common thread I want you to understand is if you are going to be bold, if you are going to stand for something, that comes from Jesus. That comes from time with Him. That comes from being in His presence. And again, I warn you that the devil, what he tries to do is get you so busy. Busy with school, busy with family, busy with work. And guess what? Sometimes busy doing good things, busy doing evangelism that you forsake that precious time with Jesus. Please, beloved, whatever you do, do not ever forsake that time with Jesus. Finally, the last thing, in the last 15 minutes or so we have, I dare you to do the impossible. I dare you to dare God. Let's go in our Bibles to Psalms 81 verse 10. Psalms 81, verse 10. I love what this says here. Psalms 81, verse 10. Psalms 81, verse 10. Are we all there? It's a unique verse. It's one of these verses I like that are a little bit obscure. The Bible says, I am the Lord your God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. What is he telling you to do here? Open your mouth wide. In other words, shoot for the stars. In other words, do the impossible. In other words, expect great things. So many times, I really, I'm really saddened at our generation, I'll be real honest with you, that we strive for such little things in life. We, we look at mediocrity and, and we just strive for the status quo. And what God wants to do is something powerful, something life-changing, something earth-shattering. And what we do is we settle for the bare minimum. Any of you want to get paid minimum wage? How about any of you? Then why do we settle for minimum wage when it comes to spiritual things? Why aren't we expecting great things? Why aren't we pleading with God and saying, Lord, why don't you transform my family and while you're at it, change the state of California? Why aren't we doing great things like that? Instead, we we just say, okay, praise the Lord. You know, I just got one Bible study today. Or praise God, I sold one book today. Or whatever it is. What God wants to do is something powerful. If you really believe we're in the end times, which I believe that, you look at... Where we are in the economy, in, in the economy, you look at where we are in the government, you look at where we are in earth history, you look at where we are in prophecy, and beloved, we are at the end. We're at the end, and God wants to take it up a notch. He wants to do powerful things, and we're here with pathetic prayer lives and pathetic lives of evangelism. Expect great things from God. It says in Ephesians 3, verse 20, that He's able to do what, everyone? exceedingly abundantly above all that you may ask or think. Matthew 19 verse 26 says that with men it is impossible, but with God, how much is possible? All things are possible. Let's go in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 14 as we start to wind down. Matthew chapter 14 
Notice what it says. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 27. Matthew 14, verse 27. And here's a good story. Now, here's the funny thing. When it comes to the disciples, the one disciple we all like to pick on is Peter. The one disciple we all like to make fun of, the one disciple we like to to kind of poke fun at is always Peter. He's always getting himself into trouble. He's always saying something out of line. He's always doing something. But let me challenge you something about Peter. Let me show you. Matthew 14, verse 26. And the disciples saw Jesus walking on the sea, and they were troubled, saying, It is his spirit. And they cried out for fear. Verse 27. But straightway Jesus spoke unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, for it is me, or it is I. Be not afraid. And verse 28. Peter, the one we all like to make fun of, the one we all like to poke fun at. Fun at. He says, Peter says unto him and says, Lord, if it be you, invite me to come out unto the water. Verse 29. Jesus says one word, come. One word. So I can imagine Peter coming out of the ship and, you know, at first when he's putting his foot out, he's kind of testing it and realizing, wow, I can actually stand on this. Now, for all the jokes that we put on to Peter, for all the things we make fun of him for, let me ask you a question. Have you ever walked on water? Then keep your mouth shut, right? And when you start to walk on water and to do that, now you can say, yeah, but he fell. Still, he walked on water for, what, 10 seconds or whatever he, he walked on water for? Beloved, what I'm trying to tell you here is that the rest of the disciples, they were looking at the ship and they're like, scared to go out. At least Peter tried. Here's the beautiful thing. When you try to do something for Jesus, and let's just say that you fail, let's just say that you fall, guess what? There's a safety net there. Guess what? You have a benevolent, loving creator who has an arm that is not too short to save you. You have this loving God who the moment you are falling, when you say, Lord, help me or Lord, save me, he comes out and picks you up. Now, let me ask you a question. Imagine what that walk was like on the back of to the ship. Joel, why don't you stand up? Let's just say Joel was Peter. Let's just say that he's humiliated. I bet you that the walk was a little bit like this. Put your arm around me. I bet it was like this. That even though Peter fell, could you imagine Jesus' arm around you or Peter's arm around Jesus walking back to the ship? Thank you, Joel. Now, here's the lesson I want you to understand here. Let's attempt great things for God. Now, what I love about this is if you attempt things for God and the moment you start to take credit for things... The moment you start to look and, and, and look around at the ship and, and to realize, wow, I can actually do this, that's when God wants to teach you some lessons. And beloved, my prayer and hope for each of you is that you've learned all those lessons at Souls West. My prayer and hope for you is that when you leave this place, that you will run on water and nothing will stop you. My hope and prayer for you is that you leave this place, that you are running, you are seeing Jesus, and there's no more stumbling. That you're looking not to yourself, but you're looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. I love what Ellen White says. She says, our artificial civilization encourages evils which are destroying sound principle. And the Lord is at the door. 
Where are the men who will go forth to the work? She's issuing a dare here. Where are the women who will go forth to the work, fully trusting in God, ready to do and to dare? Ellen White is issuing a dare to you and I, saying, where are the men? Where are the women? Where are those who's willing to stand up and to do something? Where are those who's willing to, to put away that artificial civilization? I love what she says there. Because we look around us and so, so much in life, we look at ourselves and we, we get caught up in this American dream. And we think to ourselves that, man, if I only just got my degree and if only I just got married, if only I had kids and if only I had a, a house with a picket fence, I'll be happy. And what Ellen White is trying to tell us all and warn us is saying, that dream that you're looking at in this world is artificial. It's fake. It's Hollywood. What she's saying is, why don't you look to heavenly things? Why don't you, instead of investing in this nonsense, invest in the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. Ellen White lived her life principle that way. She was bold. She stood for what's right. She was willing to go and do things. Where is a generation of young people like that? I'm speaking very candidly here to you, to myself. We hear this all the time. I'm almost sick and tired of hearing this, that we're the generation that will finish this work. Let me speak plainly. The way that you're living, the way that I'm living, that's not the case. The way that we're looking at things, the way that we're looking at, at investing our lives and whatever it is, the way that we are living, the way that we are, our, 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 our normal daily life routine is, that does not tell of someone who is ready for translation. Where's the generation that will be the one to get the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? Where's the generation that will perfectly reproduce Christ's character? Where's the generation that will lay aside theological, racial, social divides and unite under the banner of the third angel's message? Where are the people of old? I got inspired when I read this, and I hope you will as well. This is from the diary of John Wesley. Sunday, 5 a.m. Sunday, I'm sorry, a.m., May 5, preached in St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday, p.m., same day, May 5, preached in St. John's, deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday, March 12, in the morning, a.m., preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday, May 19, a.m., preached in St. Somebody Else's. The deacons called special meeting and said I couldn't return. Sunday, May 19, p.m., preached on the street, got kicked off the street. Sunday, May 26, preached in a meadow, chased out of the meadow as a bull was turned loose during the service. Sunday morning, June 2, preached out at the edge of town, kicked off the highway. Sunday, p.m., June 2, preached in a pasture, 10,000 people came to hear me. Where are the people who are willing to get up and do things regardless of the results? 
You see, the type of people we are, we're so result-driven. We have to see the numbers. We have to see the baptism. John Wesley went out because of principle. Where are that kind of people? Where are those young people who are going to live life out of principle? Live life not out of convenience. Live not, life not just because everyone else is doing it. I dare you to do the impossible. Where are the mighty men of valor and women? The John Wesleys, the Martin Luthers, the Husses, the Romes, the William Millers, the John Calvins, the Ellen Whites. You see, all it takes is something little and God can use you. But you need to have that desire. You need to have that want. Moses led Israel out of Egypt with a stick. David killed the giant with a sling and a rock. Gideon and 300 men attacked 135,000 Midianite soldiers with trumpets and torches. These things should not have happened. They weren't normal. They defied reality. They defied the facts. And beloved, God wants to do that today. The problem is, where are the people who are willing to do that? As I close, I just want to dare you a couple of other things. I dare you, young people, to not live for the world, but to live for our Lord and Savior. I dare you, parents and teachers, to challenge the youth of today to an even higher standard. I dare you pastors to preach Christ crucified and the faith of Jesus with the three angels' message. I dare you to give what you have. Beloved, I dare you to dare God. To put Him in a place for Him to work miracles. I dare you to make changes in your life where evangelism isn't a hobby, it's a lifestyle. Amen. Going back to what we talked about in the beginning, this generation is not defined. All the other generations, there was some definitive moment that defined them. My challenge for each of you is that that definitive moment will be the second coming. That we won't be known as the millennials, the baby boomers, and, or the, the echo boomers, or generation net, or generation Y, or the millennials, but you will be known as the last generation. The one who wrapped things up. That is my prayer for you. I want to make an appeal for those of you here, because this message is not only for the graduating class, it's for each of you. If you want to be bold, if you want to stand, if you want to do something, even if it means doing something against the wishes of family, friends, I invite you to stand. If you want to be bold, if you want to stand, even if it means doing something that is against what is popular. Of course, beloved, what I'm referring to is something that is principled by God. I want you to stand. For those of you here, I'm talking to the older generation. 
For those of you here who are not part of Generation X, but are part of the Echo Boomers or the Baby Boomers or part of the what we call the silent generation or even the greatest generation. For those of you, I'm daring you to set the standard high, to be an example for these young people and those who are sitting in this convention today. I'm asking for those of you who are older, who you are taking upon yourself, that you want to be a spiritual example to the young. If you are saying, Lord, please help me to put away those things I'm struggling with. Lord, please help me to put my priorities straight. Help me to to not be the one who is just learning from young people how to do evangelism, but to lead in evangelism. I want you to raise your hand, those of you who are older, who are parents, who are saying, I pledge to stand. I pledge to put myself as a spiritual example. My other appeal is for those today who are going to college, those today who are going to our Adventist schools or college educations, those today who are going to non-Adventist backgrounds. There's a number of you who you've decided to be Adventist and we salute you for that, but we also know that sometimes it means going against what your family may be doing or saying. How many of you here today, you will say, I will remain faithful even if it means doing what's unpopular. Even if I'm going to a university or whatever it is. I've chatted with some of you here today. I want you to raise your hand. Specifically, you're going to a college. You're going to your family. And you know the persecution you'll get. And you pledge you will be faithful. Praise the Lord for your decision. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you thanking you for how you have blessed how you have been our teacher, how you have spoken. I thank you for each person here who has stood up to the challenge and the dare, a dare to be bold, a dare to stand, and a dare to do great things for you, to put you in a position to bless. I pray, Lord, that we will all be safe to bless. I pray that in our boldness we will get that because we had an experience with you. When we stand for you, it will not be because of pride, but it will be because we are principled. And finally, Lord, I pray for those who are attempting the impossibles, the Peters out there, who are attempting to walk on water, that no matter what it is, the end result is we will be in the ship with you. I pray for each person here under the sound of my voice that you will keep them faithful to this end. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.